0: On October 27, 2018, a lone gunman killed 11 Jews at Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. It's one of the oldest Jewish neighborhoods in the country. The attack is considered the most deadly anti-Semitic attack in American history. It's documented in Mark Oppenheimer's latest book, Squirrel Hill, The Tree of Life Synagogue Shooting and the Soul of the Neighborhood. The story of the community's grief in the ensuing year is a complicated thing, but author Mark Oppenheimer focuses, too, on their ongoing processes toward healing. The transactions are messy and tense, complicated and troubling, but they're also imbued with loving kindness given over to all, touched by the events of that fall morning. This is Book Public from Texas Public Radio, I'm Yvette Benavides. I spoke with Mark Oppenheimer about his book, Squirrel Hill, The Tree of Life Synagogue Shooting and the Soul of a Neighborhood. So, Mark, why did you take this on as a subject? I mean, this seems like such a wholly intimidating subject to immerse yourself in for such a long time, a little different from your previous books. Why did you take this on as a subject for this book and write about it now?
1: The subject really found me. Uh, I remember the morning of the shooting in Pittsburgh, October 27th, 2018. I was in a synagogue outside Boston a couple hours from my home in Connecticut. I was there with my eldest daughter for the bat mitzvah of a summer camp friend of hers. And we had left our phones in the car all morning and, and through the luncheon afterwards and didn't get back to our car till about one o'clock. And then I looked at my phone and there were text messages you know scrolling down my phone uh, are you going to Pittsburgh did you hear what happened in Pittsburgh do you know anyone in Pittsburgh and I had no idea what any of this was about I mean this was a couple hours two, three hours after the shooting had happened had started and I had no idea because we had been without technology inside the synagogue on the Sabbath and I quickly read up on what had happened and was astonished um, as a journalist because I cover religion and have covered uh, a lot of horrible things in in the world of religion but had never covered a mass shooting and so I thought about it as a journalist uh, I thought about it as a Jew obviously I am always in synagogue on Saturday mornings, so it, it could have been any of us really but then I also connected to it as somebody with a lot of Pittsburgh heritage the shooting the shooting took place in Squirrel Hill which is the neighborhood in Pittsburgh that my father and two generations of his family before him were from. Uh, My father was a fifth generation Pittsburgh Jew, and and the last three generations all lived within a quarter mile or a half mile of where this shooting took place. So I felt a very personal sense very early on that this was something I should go look into. When I watched
0: the news about this Massacre. I I don't know that I understood the space or the topography well enough to visualize or begin to understand what the Tree of Life is in that space. It's on the corner of Shady and Wilkins Avenues, but it's it's not just a single building, um, and it houses houses three distinct congregations. Your book does so many things to reveal what you what's what you say in the subtitle, the soul of a neighborhood. And it reveals, to the way this space opened itself up to the rest of the world that wanted to try to understand what happened, to grieve, to help. But I I wonder if you can discuss the center of this space, that is the the people, those members of that congregation who were there that day. Many of them were older citizens of Squirrel Hill. The youngest victims were David and Cecil... Uh, Rosenthal who were in their 50s they were the youngest of the victims they were brothers reading the book I felt like understanding them and the responses to not just their deaths but their lives after that October day is to understand understand the space as a community I was uh, so touched by your retelling of how beloved these brothers were and the outpouring of support For their sister, the way that the players from the Pittsburgh Steelers football team attended the services, for example, as did members Mm of uh, 18 Engine Firehouse. Can you talk about about Cecil and David?
1: Absolutely. Uh, You know, what you say about Tree of Life being more than a building is really true. Tree of Life is by some measures the oldest continuously operating synagogue in Squirrel Hill, which is the oldest Jewish neighborhood, not just in greater Pittsburgh, but by some measures in the United States. It's been about a third Jewish since World War I, so exactly a century now. Hmm. Recently, Tree of Life has had declining membership, and, and so it has rented space to two other congregations, uh, Dor Hadash and New Light, which are also synagogues also meeting in Tree of Life. So there were three congregations meeting that morning in one building. Now, the shooting happened when it was still early, and the congregation's members had not all arrived yet. So there were 22 people in the building, which included 21 Jews from three different congregations, and then one non-Jewish custodian who was in the building. Um, 11 people were killed. Of the other 11, two were shot and injured, uh, but, but survived, and nine got out unscathed. So already right there, you have in this building a microcosm of greater pittsburgh and jewish greater pittsburgh three congregations all under one roof an italian american custodian who would meet early in the morning with the two intellectually disabled brothers who were murdered and have tea with them on saturday mornings before services started Um, such an extraordinary commingling of people from different backgrounds different jewish backgrounds but also jewish and non-jewish backgrounds as well a a real community hub the two brothers uh... who were killed at david and cecil Road the David and Cecil Rosenthal, who were both in their fifties and were the two youngest uh, people killed that day, have have lived their whole lives in Squirrel Hill. They they were both intellectually disabled. They were not able to live independent lives on their own. Um, They have two sisters. Uh, Their parents are still alive. And they were part of this extraordinary community of people who always looked after them and always referred to them very affectionately as the boys, even once they were into adulthood. And they they liked being called that. They didn't mind being called that. Um, And everyone knew the boys. They were greeters. They were uh, outgoing and gregarious. They knew Squirrel Hill. They would walk around it themselves. Occasionally they would work odd jobs in Squirrel Hill. Um, and one of them, David Rosenthal, had a special relationship with the firefighters at 18 Engine, which is the firehouse, the fire station on Northumberland Avenue in Squirrel Hill. He would drop by on Saturday mornings and hang out with the firefighters. He would give them orders, tell them how to clean up, <laughs> tell them that they were <laughs> loafing uh, and they had to get their act together and, and that the fire engines had to be spick and spam. And after they were murdered, a group of the firefighters from 18 Engine went to the funeral and then to the parents' house afterwards and um, gave them, uh, you know, gave, um, gave them a copy of the Jewish Bible from the firefighters mm. to the Rosenthal family and made the boys honorary Pittsburgh firefighters. And it was it was just incredibly moving. There was one I talked to, one firefighter, um, who said that he keeps replaying over in his mind what if he had been in the fire station that morning and maybe David would have stopped by to see him because they'd always been close. And if David had stopped by to see him, maybe he would have hung out instead of being on time for synagogue. And maybe then he wouldn't have gotten murdered. And he just kept blaming himself for not having been at the firehouse to to waylay David to, to save his life. And, and But that speaks to the kind of community you're talking about.
0: Yeah, your book covers so many amazing stories uh, like this one. I mean, it's about people who were involved in myriad ways with the Tree of Life, people of all faiths and all backgrounds, as you say. Each and every person you present seemed to me to be the subject of a book all their own. It just reminds us, um, as good storytelling does, as nonfiction does, that people are just utterly and wholly complex and the richness of the elements of these stories are things you just can't make up. You don't have to make them up. Um, even I'm, I'm thinking, for instance, of the chapter titled Gentiles and the story about uh, Shay Katiri and Tim Hines, and also the mm. the, uh, the chapter titled Symbols and the story about Nicole Flannery. So not just people within the congregation, but people on the outside Every single story, every single person you bring up has this incredible story. Nicole Flannery is the artist who painted the windows at the Starbucks nearby. Right. Um, Um, I would just get so caught up in the individual stories, even if they were obviously not the main focus of the book or not the main focus of uh, the people who who worshiped at the synagogues, right? It's just incredible to me, this these stories all in one place.
1: Right, I, you know, this was obviously a specifically Jewish tragedy, there's no way around it. And yet, uh, it was also a Squirrel Hill and Pittsburgh tragedy. And Squirrel Hill is a place where there are very affectionate ties between and among ethnic groups and people really do look out for each other. And uh, the aftermath, as it played out, would have been unthinkable without the Gentile allies who stepped forward and helped. So you mentioned Sheikh Khatiri, who is an Iranian American expatriate, now a graduate student. Uh, always wanted to come to America. Always, um, you know, having grown up under the oppressor regime in Iran, always uh, idolized America, and had had so many. Relationships with Jews in the United States, in places where he had studied, where he had attended academic programs, that it was just unthinkable to him that anyone would want to hurt Jews this way. He was up on GoFundMe mm-hmm. hours after the shooting. I mean, that that same day, early afternoon, with a GoFundMe page that ended up raising over a million dollars for uh, the victims at Tree of Life and for those congregations. It was certainly the largest solo fundraising effort that was done in the aftermath and again this is someone who's not Jewish this is someone who's not a Pittsburgher but he just felt like he had to do something and then in Pittsburgh the way that you would know that there's been a tragedy today is because you would still see in the in the shop windows this beautiful logo, which is inspired by the Pittsburgh Steelers logo, but replaces the yellow element in the Steelers logo, in the football logo, with a yellow star of David, uh, a Jewish star. And that mashup was done by this, again, non-Jewish, German-American, Lutheran-American graphic designer named Tim Hindus. And that's in all the shop windows. And then if you walked by the main Starbucks, the probably the busiest coffee shop in Squirrel Hill, um, you on Forbes, On Forbes Avenue, you would see the uh, the window art that includes Hebrew lettering, uh, spelling out the words for hope and love and kindness done by Nicole Flannery, who is this lapsed Catholic artist in the area. So it's it's absolutely unthinkable what the aftermath would look like without the compassionate outpouring from. So many Gentile allies in Pittsburgh, and and that that is it continues to be very visible in the Squirrel Hill streetscape.
0: The book is so um, balanced um, along the lines of maybe even some troubling things that are difficult to talk about. Can you talk a little bit about something? that's actually really timely, and we've just been talking about this in the context of the media coverage about Gabby Petito, uh, mm-hmm. the young woman who was on a cross-country trip with her boyfriend and went missing and was recently uh, found dead. The idea has surfaced again that the media exposure for some victims of violent murders might be disproportionate, that victims who are People of color don't get the same coverage in the news magazines or on newscasts, and you write about this in your book regarding, for example, uh, the way the tragedy was handled at um, at Alderdice High School. Um, so, it I mean, it's it just seems like it's so timely. But you didn't write this book recently, you know, as we've been hearing again about this. Um, this sort of call for for more fair and balanced coverage. So it just shows again that you know it it's it is something that's important, and it rears its head and and it needs to be included in a story like this one.
1: Well, we're a very polarized society in all sorts of ways. So and that's that's unfortunate. But it's our job as journalists to look at reality and talk about what we see. Uh, so I absolutely wanted to talk about the different and polarized ways that this tragedy was perceived. The most obvious polarization is along racial lines. Um, Pittsburgh has a small black population, smaller than that uh, percentage-wise of Cleveland or Chicago or Detroit or New York. It's really quite small. And African-Americans there often feel overlooked. Um, And there was a sense among, and I write about african-american high schoolers at Alderdice high school which is in the heart of squirrel hill there was a sense among some of them that um you know the black community had lost a number of people who had gotten less attention or no attention and that was surely partly because it was a kind of slow drip of a murder here a murder there rather than one mass killing episode but they also felt that it was because of whom the media might choose to focus on and because of the the cultural power of uh, the Jewish community, the financial clout of the Jewish community that um, that may have swayed how it was perceived. And I think there is some truth to that. Um, But I think there are other polarizations, too, and they're all important. So one of them is how we treat mass killings versus slow, episodic waves of death. Right. So, Mm -hmm. you know, right now, the the slow drip of killings that are affecting, say, African Americans in Chicago, to pick one's, one city, uh, each of those victims gets infinitesimally less attention than the uh, the nine victims of the Mother Emanuel shooting in Charleston, South Carolina at a black church in 2015. Uh, the reality is that our media, in addition to favoring stories about whiter people, also favors stories about mass killings. As opposed to, you know, the slow drip of a homicide here, a homicide there. That also affects, of course, the underreporting of attacks on Orthodox Jews Mm -hmm. in Brooklyn, in New Jersey, in upstate New York. Uh, shamefully underreported the amount of anti-semitic violence on a, on a slow dripping level that goes on so um, so there are all of these polarizations there's white black which is very very real there's also mass killing versus slow episodic perennial killing which I think is also a distortion um, because the real you know the the homicides that are really going on are not only proportionately against people of color, but also disproportionately you know, quiet and episodic rather than a big burst of gunfire in, in a church or in a house of worship. So there are, all sort, there are all sorts of ways in which we misunderstand violent crime in America, and I did do my best in this book to, uh, to try to sort that out.
0: Yes, and I appreciated that very much. And, and also in other ways um, that I'm thinking about, for instance, you write about uh, Danielle Kranich. She's the person who delivered uh, chalas all over Squirrel Hill in the days after the shooting. In an email, she wrote that she felt that the narrative of strength and unity had obscured how much people were still hurting. I mean, that was a tough thing to read um, near the end of the book, right? And she, But it's very honest. She said that she does... Um, deny the truth of the positive messages about community and resiliency, and they obfuscate the deep pain that so many still live with. And she said that white supremacy, Jew hatred, and gun violence remain real and insurmountable threats. So, you know, even the stronger than hate slogan that seems so ubiquitous throughout Pittsburgh, it, it, it was a sentiment that she after a while you know she couldn't stand to hear it anymore the abject pain might never be tempered by anything i mean that's something that Mm -hmm. comes through so honestly not a celebrity visit you know or uh, you know large crowds and candles so um reading about these really complicated responses is something that balances this book for me, too. I mean, many stories like this. I hadn't even thought about that, the ways that a community is grieving and then is besieged by the what, what you call the trauma tourists, the busloads of students, the medical clown. Um, was that something that you had anticipated encountering?
1: No, I had no idea what I was going to encounter, and I was uh, surprised at how often the best intentions do go awry. Uh, I talked to Nina Butler, who was one of the local uh, prominent Jews who was trying to coordinate all the people who wanted to visit. And of course, she knew people who had been killed. This was an attack on her community. She's Orthodox, and the, the Jews who were killed were not Orthodox Jews. But nevertheless, these were lifelong Squirrel Hill people. She knew some of them. this felt personal to her, and she was spending hours and hours on this Google spreadsheet sifting through um, requests from people who wanted to come to town, wanted to bring busloads of students to uh, to visit Tree of Life, wanted to bring out-of-town guests to go to the funerals, and she's there trying to figure out can we lodge them, can we find kosher food for them, can we help direct them to other people who will house them, and ultimately what she said to a lot of them was, Please stay away. This is a community that needs to grieve. We have to marshal our own resources, at least for the next couple of weeks. We're not here to be a museum of trauma for you. So, trauma is very complicated. Um, it's complicated because there are people who feel it long after everyone else has moved on, there are people who feel it even in the, uh, in the face of all this sloganeering that says we're stronger than hate and we will survive. And there are people who don't feel stronger and don't feel that they will survive. It's also complicated because there are people who are expected to feel traumatized who don't. And I talked to one man in his 90s who was inside the building and saw the shooter and was not himself shot, got out fine. And he said, look, this is not the worst thing that's ever happened to me. This was a man who had lived a long life. He had fought in World War II. He had lost a son to aids in the early days of the aids epidemic he'd been through a lot and being inside the building and getting out alive as (laughs) stressful as it probably was did not strike him as one of the most traumatic things that had happened to him even though people expected that it would so there are all of these expectations that some will be traumatized but they're not that some people will have moved on but they haven't and that some people Want to see a therapy dog, or a medical clown, or a yoga practitioner, or a Reiki healer? When in fact they want nothing of the kind. So sorting out the the mismatch between intentions and what people actually need is one of the great projects of a community that has just suffered a mass killing. And I tried to talk about that in the book.
0: Oh, and it just comes through. I mean, it's not. You know, it's the expectation shouldn't be that we're all going to look at the memorial art and and automatically feel better. I mean, certainly it does that on some level, but it, it's just a, a much more complicated story. And that whole panoply of different characters, different attitudes, different responses— it's, uh, it's almost instructive. I mean, God forbid any one of us would, would ever experience anything like that. but it's almost instructive about how complicated people are and and all of the different ways we we can try to understand each other is is even mm-hmm. I think through our you know these sorts of, of responses to uh, very difficult situations. The, the structure of, of your book interests me a lot, too. Um, it's not just sort of a series of, like, these one-off profiles and episodes. We meet, for instance, um, I'll just name one person, Tammy Heps, early on, but we've not seen the last of her. I mean, the way the stories continue to intersect and the way a later chapter harkens back to an earlier one, I mean, it's, it's so impressive to me. You write... In a sort of a, of an afterward in your book about your reporting process too, in a chapter titled "Notes on the Reporting," and it's nothing mm-hmm. short of uh, stunning. thus uh, the level of careful and meticulous attention um, to these, to so many details, so many people, so many stories, so much history, so many facts, and you write that between. November 2018 and March 2020, you traveled to Pittsburgh 32 times. You interviewed 250 people. 175 of those were prearranged interviews, and the rest were just sort of these casual conversations that emerged. It seems like, Mark, such a punishing pace, (laughs) but a necessary momentum. I, I mean, I was looking at this and thinking, how is this book out? <laughs> Doesn't he need more time? Right. Did it all just come to uh, a weird grinding halt with the pandemic shutdown in, in March? Well,
1: that's interesting. Interesting you asked that. Um, I was buying my plane tickets to Pittsburgh. I was traveling there about once a week, again, for 18 months with obviously a bunch of weeks off. So it ended up being 32 trips from my home in Connecticut to Pittsburgh. And I was buying my tickets well in advance because you get cheaper rates. Delta had good rates if you bought, you know, a month in advance, two months in advance. So I had bought a series of tickets that brought me up to a final ticket in mid-March of of, of 2020. Right? That's mm. when pan- the pandemic started, mm-hmm. 2020. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> <I> totally <laughs> lost track. So I actually for months had planned okay, my final trip will be in March of 2020. Like, I'm sure I'll go again at some point. But basically, the reporting ends in March of 2020, which was um, a good year and a half after the shooting. And I felt that the stories I had embarked on and the people I wanted to follow through a year of grief, give or take, would more or less have resolved or at least come to some sort of natural stopping point for my reporting by March of 2020. This was all planned out well before the pandemic. As it happened... Uh, My last trip, which lasted a couple days in March of 2020, was right when things started shutting down. And Mm -hmm. I flew in on a plane that felt, you know, half full, maybe a little bit more. And then two days later, when I flew home out of Pittsburgh, the plane was almost empty and everybody was masked. And it was clear that my reporting was done. But that had been the plan anyway, to do 12 to 18 months As much as I could. And it was sure, you know, it it was a lot. Um, (laughs) I still can't believe I did it. I was getting up at three or four in the morning uh, to go to the airport either in New York or Boston. I was about two hours from LaGuardia and two hours from Logan. Mm -hmm. So there was no easy way and there are no direct flights from Hartford. So I was getting up at four in the morning to make a 7 a.m. flight, flying to Pittsburgh, reporting all day, and flying back at nine at night and getting home at one in the morning. So it was, um, and we had just had a baby in September, Aww. the month before the shooting. So it was a lot, and my wife was heroic, and my other children were heroic in keeping the household together. But it very much felt like a story that I wanted to tell, and they were all very supportive, and um, you know, it's, uh, I'm, I'm, glad that, I'm glad that the book happened.
0: I love reading acknowledgments, and I love how you acknowledged, uh, you thanked your children for walking the dogs. I, I just thought that's so perfect. You just sort of, the, you know, the mundane quotidian things that have to get done. Somebody has to do them uh, back at home. It was a, a, such a lovely um, acknowledgment of your family.
1: Oh, thank you. I, I, too, love acknowledgments, and they're obviously a great pleasure to write because you, you wait till the very, very end. So it means you're done yeah. <laughs> with the book when you finally can type acknowledgments across uh, a new page. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to dedicate this book to anyone because if it should be dedicated to anyone, it would be to the people who died. Um, it didn't seem appropriate to dedicate it to my wife. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's not for her, it's for, it's for them. It's for the 11 who died and for, and for all people who, who suffer and, um, and, and who have felt you know, bigotry and hatred in their lives. I did think about my kids a lot though because um, the, there is a line in the conservative prayer book that we pray every Saturday Um, that comes from Torah, that comes from the the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, in which God promises that, you know, in a time to come, God will rid the land of vicious beasts so that people can lie down and and not be scared. Hmm. Uh, The way we say it is, and you you shall lie down and no one shall terrify you. And I thought of that all the time. I mean, like, what does any of us want for our children, but that they can just go to bed unscared? Like, that's really it. You know, that's sort of the yeah. The long and the short of it is like we want a country and a state and a community and a neighborhood and a household where the children can like sleep soundly at night unscared. And, you know, the, the promise to the Jews is that if you keep the commandments and if you do the right thing, and in particular, if you keep the Sabbaths, right, if you mm-hmm. honor Saturday, that you will, you will be unterrified, that nobody will scare you or terrify you. And here were these Jews who went, they did what they were supposed to do. They were in synagogue on a Saturday and what happened, but they got terrified and they got murdered. And so to me, like the whole kind of circularity of the book was kind of, it all came back to like what we wish for ourselves and our children, which is that especially on the Sabbath day, on the day of rest, Hmm. that we not be scared that we be able to relax and exhale. And for so many people, um, America at its best is a promise of that. Right. And we fall short all the time in so many ways, but, we don't fall short the way that Syria is falling short right now in civil war or the way that they fall short where there's ISIS, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like we've, we're struggling towards something better than that. And this kind of killing just makes you wonder if you, if you ever get there. So that was very much in my mind when I was writing about my children and the acknowledgements.
0: Well, speaking of children, my, my mind goes to that sort of gallows humor about the misinformation and the telephone game, the distorted, ways that the news was was um coming out of squirrel hill and this idea that that the shooting had occurred at a bris and and no it was twins and no it was a gay couple and it and it was just like this distortion of of the truth it was it was a, a light moment in in the book this idea that um uh, oh you know Uh, Oh, that would mean that there were all these young people in the synagogue. Um, And, you know, it had that moment of levity. But it reminds me, too, that on that terrible day in October, it was many elderly who died. As you write, um, you write, the ones who were the victims seem to be, quote, the most committed, the widowed, the disabled, and the lonely who were there that day uh, um, and all the time. But this goes back to also this kind of crisis of American religions. Um, In your book you talk about how uh, Jeffrey Myers laments a year on after the massacre that the services still didn't boast large groups of congregants as he said about a conversation he had with a priest friend that it's not just a problem of the Jewish faith but of all religions in America. So it's interesting to read about the people in these stories, in the face of that, who converted to Judaism, or those who took up the yeah. Um, yeah. the yarmulke again, or uh, the tefillin, as you describe in the story about uh, Robert Zacharias, these were not easy choices for him to make, to be conspicuous in these ways, um, to not doff the, the yarmulke if yeah. he felt unsafe. I mean,
1: <laughs> The, the Jews by choice, the converts, are astonishing. They are heroes to us all. I mean to, you know, it is not easy to be Jewish. It is um, in, in every country in the world except Israel, it puts you in the minority. And there is is anti-Semitism that waxes and wanes and we, it seems to be uh, waxing again. And um, to decide to join up with this tribe at a time when the tribe is being murdered Is a courageous and inspiring and beautiful choice, and there is this irony that often the Jews by choice, the converts, end up more visible, more impassioned, more knowledgeable than many people for whom Judaism is their birthright, and um, you know I definitely wanted to include that in my story. I wanted to include Jews, you know, who who returned to uh, to a synagogue after the shooting. So I talk about Eric Liggi the archivist, mm-hmm. whose commitment to going to synagogue and, and to daily worship, in some cases, was amped up after the shooting. He had fallen away from it. I did want to talk about Robert Zacharias, who, um, you know, started wearing Yamaka yarmulke after a lifetime as a fairly secular or reformed Jew, so, you know, bouncing between various levels of less observant Judaism. And then, um, yeah, and then Lynn Hyde, who, who had thought about Judaism, was married to a Jewish man, but knew after the shooting that these were her people, and she wanted to be fully among them so uh, to me these stories these human interest stories which may in some cases were not directly tied to the shooting these were people in the case of lynn and robert who did not know any of the 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 murdered but whose lives were changed because there is this outward ripple effect when something terrible like that happens and some of the effect is quite beautiful
0: i considered the word geset Mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. used in your book several times. Uh, mm-hmm. I marked it in the prologue um, in chapter 8, in chapter 9 on the symbols, and in chapter 12 the visitors, and chapter 18 the mm-hmm. anniversary. And I was sort of tracing it and the ways in which in the book of Ruth, a story about family, this idea of hesed, of steadfast, loving kindness. There is an aligning of human and divine love because it is a word ascribed to God, The God shows us what the word means. But it is a word then for the living or the dead, and it is mm-hmm. permanent. Your book seems to me a way to both illustrate and epitomize Chesed for the living and the dead, for the families and the survivors but also for the dead, for Joyce Feinberg, Richard Gottfried, Rose Mallinger, Jerry Rabinowitz, Cecil Rosenthal, David Rosenthal, Bernice Simon, Sylvan Simon, Daniel Stein, Melvin Wax, and Irv Younger. Thinking back on it now, do you feel that this was a way for you? To process your own understanding and and your sorrow your, you spoke about your children your fear and and these other emotions this idea of of hesed is just uh something i keep thinking about
1: well i think that's a beautiful midrash a beautiful commentary on it and i've never put it in those words but i think that's i think that's beautifully done and i think you know it, it is a word you see in jewish liturgy that is translated as this compound word loving kindness because it's more than just kindness, you know, bringing, you know, helping someone across the street is kindness and that's great. Uh, and it's not necessarily love, it's not It's not ahava, it's not what you have for your partner or what you have for a long-term friend or what you have for your children, which I think requires more of an ongoing uh, connection and has to be earned. It is this kind of, you know, godly, bountiful, um, you know, goodness that uh, probably close to the Christian word charity. Um, mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I didn't. Uh, the book is not for Jews. I mean, it, it's for everyone, as I think writers always hope that our works are. I think that a lot of Jews will find something in it, but I also have been incredibly moved as I've talked about it and as I've shown it to people by the non-Jews, the Gentiles, and Gentile allies, who have felt that something about it speaks to their own uh, human experience and you know, Judaism is very much a religion about the living, not the dead. Um, we tend not to have cults around the dead. We don't, um, you know, we don't have saints days for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and other religions do that work very, very beautifully and have different kinds of practices around the dead, but we, um, tend not to spend a lot of time talking about them. Mm-hmm. The thinking being that the way you honor them is by, is by living as fruitfully, uh, as you can by living the way they would want you to live. There's a great story in the Talmud, the, 6th century uh, compilation of rabbinic wisdom that if you are standing around and there is a a funeral procession that goes by and there's a wedding procession which one do you follow mm-hmm. and the answer is you follow the wedding procession <laughs> because that's what we're here for so i i'm i'm glad that the book provided an opportunity to show people you know who were touched by the tragedy but but also we're going to follow wedding processions so to speak
0: mark oppenheimer thank you so much for talking to me today i really appreciate
1: it You've had such an honor. Thank you for having me.
0: Mark Oppenheimer is the author of Squirrel Hill, The Tree of Life Synagogue Shooting and the Soul of a Neighborhood. This has been Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rezati composed our theme music. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides.